The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today, the woman behind the mic. Hear an interview of your host, Beth Green, and be amazed. Who is your host, Beth Green? You hear her on Interrevolutionary Radio easily chatting with world-renowned guests. You watch her loving videos on Interrevolutionary TV. You see her in-your-face talks on her highly popular YouTube channel, Beth Green TV. You think she's funny, warm, honest, insightful, intuitive, and smart, or you don't. I do. But (laughs) you really don't know her. Well, this is your chance to learn about Beth from the inside out. Christine Benton, a public relations senior executive and the director of the interrevolution.org, will be turning the tables this week as she interviews Beth about her amazing life story, her social and political activism, her spiritual awakening, how she became a blogger for the Huffington Post, her comprehensive writings and teachings, her school for counselors and change agents, mind-blowing counseling, books, music. Oh, and don't forget her chronic illness, with which she has struggled for the past 55 years. Who is this woman? (laughs) Tune in and meet your host, Beth Green. And call in to ask your questions. So now, here's Beth. Well, I can't wait to meet this guest. I mean, just the way you were describing her. I mean, (laughs) you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. Now, one thing I want to tell you is that Christine Benton, who is going to be interviewing me today, we, we thought this was going to be really fun. She has become the producer of Inside Out. No, not Inside Out. We used to be Inside Out of Interrevolutionary Radio. And so she's really gotten all involved in it, but usually the producer is like that behind the scenes person. Well, since this is in a revolutionary radio, uh, we're going to have our producer right on the air today, and uh, she is going to do a great job. Okay, she is a little nervous because this is the first time that she's going to be taking such a big part on our show. I think she's talked to us before, but uh, we know that you're going to give her a great warm welcome, and uh, she has no reason to be nervous because, after all, she's talking to us, right? Right. Right. Uh, oh. I hear your voice. Did I'm anybody, here. Did I say that we were introducing you yet? You've I all, can hear you. I, as soon as your bio ended, then yes, I heard you talking about me being nervous. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> 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 a little so you technical glitch. In. That would make me nervous. Are you? Are you? <laughs> by the way, uh, first we have to hear the news of the inner revolution. So I haven't introduced you yet. So okay. go back. Go back uh, into your corner, and uh, we're, we're going to call you out very shortly. All okay. right, wonderful. So, but first, we're going to hear um, James telling us about the news of the inner revolution. The inner revolution is all about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Take yes. it away, James. Okay, and this one is hot off the press today from Reuters. 
Pope Francis, the spiritual leader of 1.2 billion Catholics, challenged Congress and by extension the mightiest nation in history on Thursday, which is today, to break out of its cycle of polarization and paralysis to finally use its power to heal the open wounds of a planet torn by hatred, greed, poverty, and pollution. Taking a rostrum never before occupied by the Bishop of Rome, the pontiff issued a vigorous call to action on issues largely favored by liberals, including a powerful defense of immigration, which he, in which he said, by the way, we should welcome all 10, 11 million immigrants who are here now, a critique of the excesses of capitalism, an, enorm, an endorsement of environmental legislation, a blistering condemnation of the arms trade, and a plea to abolish the death penalty. In particular, Francis besieged a nation that generates a disproportionate share of the world's wealth to not let money drive its decisions at the expense of humanity. If politics must truly be at the service of the human person, it follows that it cannot be a slave to the economy and finance, he told a joint meeting of Congress in an address that cited American icons like Abraham Lincoln and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., he goes on to say, politics is instead an expression of our compelling need to live as one, in order to build as one, the greatest common good. Did there were some references also to the importance of marriage and religious liberty, but they were not so explicit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this sounds Well, I mean, it's that hardware. one thing. Does that sound like oneness to you? By the way, we were very oneness with the dogs. If you heard yelping and barking in the background, that was not people who were disagreeing with the Pope. That was pe- uh, dogs that were barking at the UPS man that was driving up our driveway. <laughs> Just wanted to make that perfectly clear. I am so excited by this Pope, as many of you know. And But what really keeps striking me is that he is an inner revolutionary. He's talking about oneness, with one another, accountability for our behavior, especially look at what we're doing in terms of economics and climate change and mutual support, you know, supporting the whole. That's really amazing. Now, there are people who are trying to say that the Pope also has a conservative agenda, so everybody should be happy because, you know, he has maybe a different view on women priests or gays or abortion. But what is most striking is that um, that what he's doing is in his public proclamations, he's calling us, the public, the government, to take on this agenda of oneness and taking care of people and the climate and the economy. And what he's doing is he's um, confirming the more conservative views of the Catholic Church on social issues, but he is allowing those things to be dealt with on more of a personal level and not be so much of a political social agenda. And that is what is so interesting on what the Pope is saying. Now, I know that a lot of people say, this is liberal and all of that. I don't go for those labels. What I think this is, is oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And I'm so grateful that we have someone like the Pope who is standing up there and saying what needs to be said, that we have to get over our egos, our greed, and our irresponsibility. So take it away, James. Amen. This next item is from Upworthy.com from September the 22nd. 
Leonardo DiCaprio is one of thousands who has pledged to stop investing in fossil fuel companies. The movie star is part of the Divest Invest Coalition, an initiative that encourages individual investors, foundations, and institutions to stop investing in fossil fuels and in businesses that contribute to climate change, and instead invest in renewable energy and eco-friendly companies. DiCaprio pledged to divest his personal wealth and charitable funds from fossil fuels. He's joined by 2,000 other individuals, including the Hulk, and more than 400 companies and institutions. Together, their divestment commitments total close to $2.6 trillion. The Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation Gala raised $40 million for the group, which boasts four primary areas of focus ocean and wildland conservation, climate change, and protecting biodiversity. Said DiCaprio, climate change is severely impacting the health of our planet and all of its inhabitants, and we must transition to a clean energy economy that does not rely on fossil fuels, the main driver of this global problem. DiCaprio okay, is instead uh, in investing okay. his money in trash. Go ahead. Right. Uh, okay. Waste management. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. So, James, I think this is another important in a revolutionary story because he's talking about what we are doing and he's not waiting for the government he's taking action so that really shows oneness and accountability so I think that's very important story and uh, I wish you know I've been seriously thinking about taking our fortune out of fossil fuels what about you James? (laughs) Sure (laughs) Okay and so, um, uh, take a, uh, let's take a look at that last article. Yes, this last article is from the Huffington Post, UK, September the 20th. Thousands of Icelanders offer their homes to Syrian refugees. Last month, the Iceland government announced that it would accept just 50 refugees into the country. Icelandic author, Brindis Björg Vindsdatur then launched a Facebook campaign. (laughs) Some 12,000 people, 4% of the entire Icelandic population, offered to welcome refugees into their homes. That sum would be the equivalent of 2.6 million Brits. In a post at the top of the Facebook page addressed to the Icelandic Minister of Welfare, 33-year-old Björndis wrote, The idea is to show the government that there exists a will to receive even more refugees from Syria than the 50 that have already been discussed. We want to push the government, show them that we can do better, and do so immediately. Refugees are human resources, experience, and skills. People who will never be able to say to, your life is worth less than mine. Okay, thank you. And see, this really relates to the show that we aired last week, which was an interview by former ambassador Andres Simonyi, who was talking about the very point about seeing the refugees as being an asset to Europe. And we have been on our Facebook page. We have his Huffington Post article up. We have uh, posted his interview. And uh, there's been a lot of controversy about that. But it is so exciting to see people from Iceland who are doing the same thing more interrevolutionaries people around the world. And by the way, let me mention while we're on the topic of the Huffington Post that we just uh, had two blogs come up on the Huffington Post 
just this afternoon. If you go to our Facebook page, you will see them already. Our Facebook case is Beth Green and the Inner Revolution. So in that spirit of oneness, accountability, and mutual support, I am going to introduce you to Christine Benton, our new producer who is going to be interviewing this fabulous guest today. Take it away, Christine. (laughs) Thank you. And so I missed the beginning, but James already introduced our fabulous guest today. Oh, he did. And I said, my God, I mean, how did you even book her? Oh, my God. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah. I, just, I, I mean, I would like to know this woman. <laughs> right. Well, let's dive right in then. Yes. I have a bunch of questions for you, which the first was, when did you first get the sense that you were different or had this inner revolutionary spirit in you? Oh, my God. What a wild question, Christine. I would say that I probably became aware of it on a very conscious level when I was five years old. <laughs> Should I talk about that? That's way earlier than the rest How of us, that that's for sure. <laughs> well, I was listening to some people talking. And at that time, a lot of refugees, and I'm glad that you brought this up, were coming in from Eastern Europe and uh, from displaced persons camps and so on, because I came from a Jewish family. There were a lot of Jews who came in to the U.S. after the war and in those years uh, following. And... Um, they were poor. They had been in camps. They had some of them had been in uh, concentration camps, refugee camps, and uh, people were making fun of them. They called them greenhorns. Is greenhorn a word that you use in English? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they called them greenhorns, and I was just so angry. And uh, I started to berate all these adults because children, well, I couldn't talk to children at all. <laughs> the, the children would look at me like I was, you know, from another planet. And, uh, you know, I, and I said to them, you can't tell a book by its cover. I, the only reason I know that I said that is because my mother, that's one of her favorite stories, because it was, I, I was talking to them about not judging people by the way they looked. And uh, I do remember the moment and uh, the whole living room full of friends of my mother and father stopped talking and looked at me like uh, there was something weird going on with this child. And I think I realized at that moment that I didn't fit. But I didn't think about, oh, gee, I didn't fit. I was too upset with what they were saying and I was bound and determined to make them think differently. Wow, so when did you get the sense that you were different then? Well, I saw I was different because Mm -hmm. of the way they responded to me. I'm Mm -hmm. saying I wasn't focusing on the fact that I was different. I -hmm. was focusing on my outrage about what they were doing. But then it just kept getting worse because then, uh, you know, I would go to school and all the other girls were taking dolls and, you know, and and feeding their dolls and all of that. And I was concerned about, you know, society and pain and people's... Uh, consciousness, and um, I was a very, very serious child, and and the other children uh, treated me like I was an outcast, and frankly, I don't blame them. You know, I'm not even being judgmental about it, Mm -hmm. and um, I had no friends whatsoever of my own age, and um, I was so deeply involved in uh, what I saw as being the injustices of our world. 
That, I think, is fantastic and fascinating that it was so young. And we're going to get into it a little further, but I can see uh, that we need to go to a commercial break. Oh, I love that. You're going to do that, too? Oh, am I? Yes, I love that. <laughs> All right, you're everyone, the, stay tuned. We're gonna, we were starting with Beth Green at five years old, um, <laughs> bringing uh, consciousness to the adults in her living room. And we're going to find out more about her fascinating life and thoughts about being an inner revolutionary. So stay tuned. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Be part of the inner revolution sweeping the planet. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green on the Voice America Variety Channel. And now, also enjoy Beth's channel, Inner Revolutionary TV, on voiceamerica.tv. See inspiring videos about our guests and the inner revolution. Hear commentaries that will help clarify our time. And watch interviews of people who will matter to you. Think outside the box. Watch Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Interrevolutionary Radio. And we are back with Beth Green, who is typically the host of the show, but today we turn the tables and I get to interview her. I'm Christine Benton. And that music you were just listening to that was behind uh, James was actually composed by Beth Green. That's one of the many uh, interesting things that she's done is has been a composer, and she was actually, as I understand, training to be a classical pianist when uh, life had some other ideas in mind. So tell us about that, Beth. I know that most people don't know that you've been chronically ill for decades and that um, that's something that impeded your ability to play um, and so you ended up taking a different uh, tack in life. Well, it's very true. I think I was born ill because <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a very weak body and it was very difficult for me. I, I couldn't really do what the other kids did. 
but I got uh, I was studying to be a, a pianist and I had you know you know a scholarship to uh, a, a, um, a conservatory and that kind of thing but I was physically not even able to play that well even at that time because I didn't have the strength of other children and then when I was 15 I got a rheumatic fever and um, I was in bed or a chair for the next year and a half and I did not go to high school during my junior and senior years. I actually stayed home and um, the school system sent me out somebody and she read Shakespeare plays with me for a year and that was my, uh, uh, my education. (laughs) <laughs> through, through high school and I could never really play the piano again and it was in my mid-50s that I discovered that there were electronic instruments and that you could uh, start writing music through computers and so I was able to come back to music but I used to cry every time I listened to music I, I felt so cut off and and what actually ended up being a good thing was that because I could not play any of the classical music that I loved, I had to write music that I could play. And I couldn't even play it, but I could play it a lot better than Bach or Chopin or Beethoven. So I became a composer out of necessity. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that was in my mid-50s. But uh, I never really recovered from that illness and have been chronically ill ever since. And it has definitely put a stamp on my whole life. But it didn't keep you, it didn't hold you back in some ways. I mean, you marched forward literally there, right, into becoming a social activist at a very young age. Well, yes. I embarked on social activism before I became chronically ill. As some of my listeners know, I started uh, really speaking out when I was nine. And it was at that time my parents took me through Harlem to to a cheap concert. (laughs) My, My family was poor but white and I saw Harlem I was very very upset by what I saw and Harlem is a black ghetto in New York City now remember I was born 70 years ago so we have to figure all these time things you know and I, this was 1954 and uh, I, I, I knew that I had to dedicate myself to helping to alleviate suffering and I did become an activist Right away, and as uh, some of my listeners know, I was reported to the FBI before I was 12 years old because I was living in a very, very, very restrictive time. And I did go on and um, became an activist, uh, even though I was bedridden. I wrote a letter to the New York Times about the a fear of nuclear proliferation, which was a huge fear back in those days. And, well, not that it shouldn't still be, but there was, like, nothing going on but arms race and all of that stuff. And that letter that I wrote to the New York Times, it walked across the world. Mm -hmm. And it showed up in, I don't know how, in Japan, in Poland, in Europe. And it was just amazing. And people got in touch with me. And it was because of that that I was invited to a demonstration in Washington, D.C., that November and it was a hunger strike and we all marched around the White House and there were 14 of us and I was expelled from college for uh, actually for my activities and uh, I was only 16 when all of this was happening and there was no support so that was a very sad thing but it was something that I felt this burning desire to do and then I continued to be an activist and um, 
I have to say that being expelled from this Ivy League college where I was on, on a scholarship and having no support, no movement to back me up, my parents couldn't do anything. They were hiding me in the house because they didn't want to be embarrassed in front of the neighbors and all that kind of stuff. You know, it really kind of demoralized me. But mm-hmm. I have to say that um, despite that, over the years, when I started to become more aware of the Vietnam War, 1961, 62, 63, I was very aware of racism. I, I, I tried to figure out some way that I could participate. And while it didn't stop me, my illness, it really held me back. I, I did um, work for the movement. I went to work for the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, which was one of the major spearheads of the anti-Vietnam movement. We had our first Madison Square Garden rally against the war in Vietnam in 1965 when I met a lot of the icons of the civil rights movement. And I also met Dr. Spock and lots of really amazing people that, you know, I was so privileged to be able to work with. And um, I also then worked with another organization, the National Conference for New Politics, and then it went on from there. But what was so difficult was that it was difficult for me to work. It was difficult for me to type. It was difficult for me to use my hands. It was difficult for me to march. And I remember very distinctly at one demonstration at Stop the Draft Week in 1967 where I was beaten up by four policemen with clubs. Yeah, it wasn't easy for a disabled, sickly person such as me to go on. And I mean, I could barely get up. And um, one of the policemen, who was a human being after all, you know, he reached down towards me after they all beat me and he said, are you all right? And I said, no, (laughs) I'm not all right. I'd be all right. (laughs) And then I took the subway to work and lay down on the floor. And um, it was very difficult. As I progressed in my career, uh, as an organizer, I would in, I would organize demonstrations that I couldn't walk in, you know, or I would go there and I would just sit on the side. I went a lot to, you know, big mass rallies, but it, I was physically so weak and so ill that I was always really held back. The only thing that I can say is that it just, it couldn't stop me, but it sure mm-hmm. made life difficult, <laughs> And what do you think are some of the differences between then and now? You mentioned that there was really no support when you were expelled from college. It was a a different time. What do you see as different and maybe even the same? Well, what I see as the same is there are still powerful forces that want everything to be in the status quo Mm -hmm. because somebody is gaining advantage from it. And there are voices of people who who are appalled at what they see. And the biggest difference is there's more people speaking up for social change than I ever saw. Now, I have to say that there is some exception to that. For example, the civil rights movement was absolutely astounding. When you think of what kind of repression black people in the South were facing, I'm talking about the Southern uh, civil rights movement, uh, and that they had the guts to go out there, I mean, they were getting killed, they were getting beaten, they were getting hosed, and ordinary people were going out, and there was no Twitter, and there was no Facebook, but what we had was television. And because of television, people saw some horrible things that they would not have wanted to admit, and uh, that did fuel a lot of the um, support for the civil rights movement. So the, it's different 
because there wasn't as much uh, that we have today, cell phones and Facebook and everything, but there, that, but public information has always been critical and it still is. And it was the same thing with the Vietnam War, except that what was so difficult is, again, the amount of lying that was going on. Our federal government was not lying about the, the beating of uh, people in the South and segregation. People knew about it, but they were lying about the Vietnam War. They've lied about the Gulf of Tonkin, which was the excuse for us entering that war. They were lying about casualties. They were hiding the fact that we were dropping, you know, exfoliants, defoliants, I mean, not exfoliants. <laughs> Uh, yes, I said that. Little I? scrub brushes everywhere. Yes, that's right. But and you know we did all of that, and the government lied about that. But mm-hmm. we again, we had television, we had newspapers. That's all we had. But we had something. You know, if you saw a human being be burned up by napalm on your television, you could never forget that image. And then we started seeing, you know, Americans coming home in body bags. So what we see today is a much more developed social consciousness in a wider spectrum of people. We see so many more sources of information, um, which allows people to become more knowledgeable. Whereas, you know, in those days, it was like if it didn't appear in the New York Times, it didn't happen. Or if it wasn't on Walter Cronkite, it didn't happen. And I personally witnessed suppression of news at, you know, in the, at the uh, New York Times. So, but there was no internet, so you couldn't get news from other places. So what we see that is the same is that there is very huge interests that are very powerful and who do keep t- people down. And uh, what we do see that's different is there's more power in the hands of the people to, to spread information as well as disinformation. And when you see those powerful forces, you know, and sometimes I'm sure deliver a lot of defeat to the uh, inner revolutionary, maybe, how do you stay hopeful and so persistent? You've been doing this for decades now. Well, actually, to be very honest with you, uh, in 1978, I retired from politics. I had been uh, the West Coast coordinator of the Wages for Housework campaign, which was an international women's organization. We had done a lot of great things, but I was really burnt out on the political scene because there was so much anger and there was so much uh, finger pointing and polarization that I couldn't stand it anymore. And there was a lot of infighting and it just like it, it, it creeped me out and it, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it ended things. And uh, so many of the same issues about whether we're going to fight for our little group or we're going to fight for the whole. Are we going to fight for blacks coming to college? Are we going to fight for everybody coming to college? Mm-hmm. Those kind of same kind of arguments were going on in those days. And um, so I did have a, a meltdown and a spiritual awakening in 1978. And when I did, I transferred all that passion to healing people so that we would be well on the inside. But I could not find an adequate way of bringing together that burning desire to ch- change the world so that it would be more just and more kind and more in the oneness. Um, I couldn't find a way to bring it together with the personal healing work that I was actually developing, even though I always believed that they could be 
united. And I had a message from my higher consciousness, which I call God, but I have like this voice in my head since 1978 and especially since 1980. And that voice in my head said, there's a battle going on on this planet, Beth, stay out of it. And I said, all right. So I was busy developing tools, techniques, writing books and so on about shifting our consciousness from our egoic uh, consciousness. But then at a certain point, God told me to get back into it. And um, I have to say that I didn't know how. I was confused. I started something called the Spiritual Activist Movement in, I think it was 92 or 93. Uh, I was inspired to try to get back and unite people who really wanted to change the world from the inside. But again, I was very much hampered by lack of the Internet, and I was hampered by my health. I became housebound, almost entirely housebound, in 1983. So... I was a spiritual teacher, but people had to come to me. I couldn't go anywhere. Uh, You know what I mean? I barely ever left my house. I had troubles, you know, breathing, staying awake, walking, moving, typing. You know, I was very, very ill uh, during my whole life. And, um, but, you know, I have, I was able to find ways. And now, thank you, God, I can sit in my house and I can talk on the internet and you don't know whether or not I'm dressed. <laughs> you know, you can pretty much guarantee if you're hearing me on the radio that I'm in a nightgown and a robe. <laughs> you know, and that I've just gotten out of bed and I'm completely Now we do know. Mm-hmm. Right, everybody knows now that I'll, you know, that uh, somebody's like, get up, Beth, you got to get on the air. It's like, okay, okay, what day of the week is it? Yes, the inner revolution. What can I say? It's God. God keeps me going. Spirit keeps me going. My passion for, and I want to say one more thing about my passion for injustice. I'm not allowing you to ask a lot of questions, but your Mm -hmm. questions are, you know, very, have complex answers. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, again, I'm sure this was way before I was nine years old, I went to work with my father. My father was a salesman, and he sold, you know, coffee mugs and tchotchkes, we called them in Yiddish, little stuff, to hardware stores. And when I would go into the stores with him, I could see the power trips that the buyers were playing with my father. And I could feel how painful it was for him to be in that relationship, that he needed something from them desperately in order to support his family. And um, they were like, well, if I don't get it from Frank, I can get it from somebody else. And they kept him waiting and they were rude and I could see that and I couldn't even stand going to work with him. I said, please don't take me anymore because I felt his pain, but I saw the situation, you see, and that brought in class consciousness. See, way before, I didn't learn this from reading Marx. I Mm -hmm. saw it with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. I could see racism. I could see uh, anti-Semitism. I could see the difference between the people who had the power and the people who didn't have the power. Boy, I never knew the difference, though, until I went to Smith College and I, you know, was hanging out with girls who came from that upper class that I didn't even know was supposed to exist in America. And they would take their cashmere sweaters and throw them on the floor, you know, and we were lucky if we got a sweater (laughs) of any kind, you know what I mean? So that, seeing that and feeling it so deeply and so personally, to see the pain of people who are in the unpower position and I'm glad that I had that experience because I have never forgotten that. Yeah, I'm sure there are, you know, many of our listeners, too, that have seen that before they read that. 
felt that injustice or the pain of that type of a relationship. I think they have. And I, I never understood. You know, when I was at Smith, it was so funny. I would go around the dorm where they were called houses. And I would talk to everybody there about the social environment in which we live, the society, the economic system, capitalism, as it was just like blatantly uh, benefiting some people more than others, the class distinctions. These girls had no idea. And, of course, they didn't want to listen to me. But I will tell you one thing before, because I know we're going to be going to station break and uh, and commercial break in a second. I want to tell you something. Even though there was no protest and there was no movement and my parents had no support and they couldn't do anything, even though I was expelled without a hearing, even though those girls never talked to me, and I said earlier in, my, in this talk that I had no friends, I did not have a friend. I had no one to sit and eat, eat lunch with until I got to high school, until that short time I was in high school be- before I became sick and went to bed, you know, and I was isolated again. Nothing. I mean, no support, no friendship, nobody to talk to me. And the same thing happened when I was in college. I would sit there and nobody would talk to me. But after they found out that I was being expelled without a hearing, mind you, what happened was those same girls came and helped me pack. Because the school was so threatened by one child Mm. with a voice that they said they were going to teach me a lesson they would never forget. And they told my parents that they had to get me out of the school that afternoon. And of course, my parents lived in New York City, and this was in Massachusetts. My parents said, we couldn't get there this afternoon. So my parents asked them, please keep me there until the next day. And so that night, the girls in my dorm, they found out about it, and they packed me up, and they would write me little notes, you know, Mm. saying they were sorry. But, you know, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do anything about it. They didn't have the courage and they couldn't be seen with me. They would not be seen with me. They wouldn't walk next to me at that school. But they knew in their hearts, what we all know in our hearts, that social injustice is the deepest pain that any of us will ever experience. That's quite a statement. That is quite a statement. And um, I want to I talk a little bit more about that when we get back. We're going to go on a short break. So stay tuned, everybody. We're, we're talking with Beth Green. You've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. 
Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Be part of the inner revolution sweeping the planet. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green on the Voice America Variety Channel. And now, also enjoy Beth's channel, Inner Revolutionary TV, on voiceamerica.tv. See inspiring videos about our guests and the inner revolution. Hear commentaries that will help clarify our time. And watch interviews of people who will matter to you. Think outside the box. Watch Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Interrevolutionary Radio. And we're back. This is Christine Benton. We're turning the tables today. I'm interviewing Beth Green, who's usually the host of Interrevolutionary Radio. And right before the break, she made a pretty profound statement, which is that social injustice is the deepest pain that we all feel. And uh, we could see how it's fueled her, her desire to really help people and um, help the world. And at, at one point in her life, she, as she mentioned, um, she just took a break from social activism and had a spiritual and then a psychic awakening. So can you tell us a little bit about that, Beth, how your spirituality came to play in your life and in, and in your ongoing you know, evolution as an inner revolutionary? Well, thank you, Christine. I think deep inside me, I've always been spiritual, even though I was you know, a socialist. But I was so angry at God for the way the world was. And I found nothing in the religion that I grew up in that had any meaning. It was all kind of, it seemed kind of abstract and nonsensical to me, so I did not relate to it. Um, And so I became an atheist because I used to say, if there were a God, I would have to hate him. But, and I really felt that way. But in 78, I went to a 12-step program because I had uh, met an alcoholic. And that, I just like, I walked into the room and it was instant. I looked at the faces of the women there and I said, oh my God, uh, you know, they have something I don't have. And that is some kind of inner peace. And so I immediately flipped over because I have a tendency to do the things like immediately. When I get the message, I get it. So I started to like, open my heart up to a higher power, to God, as, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it, higher consciousness, higher power, God, I really don't care what you call it, the big light bulb in the sky. And um, so I started to, to like, start, I would sit down and I would write conversations with God, and I would be the Beth, and then I would say God, and it would just come out of my fingers. It's like, well, where is this coming from? But it never dawned on me that there was anything unusual about that. <laughs> so that's how it started. And then in 1980, because of my terrible health, I went to a, a holistic doctor who said I was the weakest human being he'd ever met of any age, and he tr- sent me to a metaphysical counselor as a last resort, and she turned on a green light, and I had this slight increase in my strength, and she started talking about past lives, and I said, no, excuse me, it didn't happen like that, and I didn't even 
I'd never even heard of a past life. And I could see as clear as like if I was watching a movie, I could see things and I saw images and I told her what I was seeing. Now, I don't even know whether there are past lives, but this metaphor came through me and she checked in and she said, oh my God, you're right. And all of a sudden I had this explosion of being able to see, this is in 1980, hear voices, mm-hmm. t- get direct guidance. And that guidance trained me like I was a little soldier. I was told not to read anything, not to go to any spiritual organizations or uh, study religion or anything like that, but just to listen to what I called God. And I was to be a blank slate that God was going to work, uh, was going to write on. And that is exactly what happened. I got this inner voice. I started having these inner guides coming through me that had different names and and then I and I had nothing but corroboration that this was all real because, you know, like one of them told me I was going to buy a house that was 50% more than I could qualify for. And six weeks later, I bought that house. And he also told me that I shouldn't sign the contract, that it was bad. And he told me exactly what was wrong with it. And I fixed it. And the other side agreed. I mean, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I have a million stories about how I had corroboration that this inner voice was real and accurate and spot on. I mean, jaw-dropping stories, I I would say. But we don't have time to go into that. But just trust me, maybe another time. But what did happen is that immediately the same day that the green light went on and I started hearing these voices, I started to do counseling because uh, I told my sponsor in my 12-step program about it. And she said, well, can you do that for me? And I said, sure, why not? She came over and that was the beginning of my practice. That was 1980. And I developed this intuitive counseling practice and I was guided to form an organization, which was then called The Stream. I formed that in 1983. We went through a lot of changes. I started channeling books. I started channeling music. I started, if I had to do a workshop, I walked in, I didn't even know the topic. And I would just sit there and say, okay, today we're going to work on this. Or if I knew the topic, I didn't know what I was going to say. And I just completely had faith in that inner connection. And it was always there. When I was counseling, it was there. I did learn a lot doing it. Like I saw how I could be blocked by other people's psyches and so on. So, um, and there it goes. I just really had this inner voice and I had that same passion to follow that guidance that I had about becoming a, a revolutionary. Wow. And, um, sorry, I was just, how, how was that the same? Like, did you feel like you were being guided, like spiritually guided when you were young? Well, you know, I must have been, but I didn't know it. In fact, how could I have suddenly become so psychic, like, in two seconds? I must have had it in me all the, t- all the time, but something awakened it in me. And, um, you know, people have talked to me about being trained to be intuitive, and I have trained many, many people to use their intuition. But uh, one of the differences is that the way I have been trained to, to uh, use my intuition is to use it for the highest good of all. I do not use it to get things. I was never guided to be self-centered, try to get money, manifest what I wanted, get the life I wanted, get the man I wanted, um, all that kind of stuff. So I, uh, 
I, I didn't have that. I always mm. knew that I was supposed to be serving humanity and serving God at the same time to do the right thing and to help people to change. And when I could come back into spiritual activism to what we call the inner revolution, I became ecstatically happy because at that point I was able to bring together that awareness of the collective suffering and the awareness of the individual suffering Mm -hmm. and the skills that I had developed since 1980 to work with people and to help them transform. Well, uh, you know, to be able to bring them together is like the, the absolute realization of my dream that I can do this. I, uh, it is the realization of my dream, my childhood dream, that I can be on Interrevolutionary Radio and talk to these fantastic people who are out there, who care, who are so connected. Whether they think they're spiritual or not, they are, in mm-hmm. my way of thinking. And so are you. I don't care about whether you think you're spiritual or you're religious, I really don't care about that because spirituality is about that feeling of connection. And so I am grateful to be able to talk to these people and bring, give them a platform for them to share what they're doing. At that interrevolutionary TV, I make these videos. I mean, I didn't know how to make videos. I didn't know how to do any of this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, on our Beth Green TV uh, channel on YouTube, I I give these talks. You would think that I had them planned, but I don't. I just sit there and it just comes to me what I'm supposed to talk about. And I write blogs for the Huffington Post and I train people in our uh, school for, interrevolutionary school for counselors and change agents. It is a privilege to be alive at this time and to be working with the shift in consciousness that we see happening. And I'm grateful to be part of it. And what about, I know we just have a, a couple minutes left here, a quick minute, on, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are thinking, oh my goodness, like that is amazing, you know, the life that you've had and the gifts that you've been given, but for, um, for the rest of us, what's like the one key ingredient for being an inner revolutionary, even if we don't have, you know, the psychic uh, abilities, etc.? Caring. Mm. I think that caring brings courage not the other way around. I, I mean, I am not a courageous person. And as uh, Christine, you know, has said, uh, I've, I'm actually a very sick person, very ill, very fragile physically. And yet, you know, I've been at the front of the demonstrations with the horses, you know, uh, coming after us. I have been at the front line of, to the best of my ability, of trying to create an inner revolution no matter who I'm offending. I have always confronted, honestly, my clients, even when they hate what I'm saying, even though they need to hear it. That's caring. Mm -hmm. It's caring that gives courage. If you feed your caring, you will find the courage. And then if you can't find it just in you, get the support. Listen to our show. Come onto our Facebook page. Get together with people at the innerrevolution.org. We're not a bunch. There's not a lot of bets in our organization, but there's a lot of yous there. And mm-hmm. together we can have the courage, the will, the determination, and the wisdom to help change our world. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> I know we need to just take a couple minutes to talk about upcoming upcoming shows. Yeah? Yes. Yes. 
Well, the first thing that I want to do is have James talk about what we're doing next week, and then we have a special thing that we're going to talk about after that. Okay, James, take it away. Coming up next week, Blacks, Jews, and Social Justice, an inside look into Seth Limmer, an activist rabbi. In 1965, three civil rights marches from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, were met by violence, including two deaths. Public outrage helped fuel passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Since then, we've seen a dramatic erosion to voting rights and an explosion of anger about the disproportionate use of police violence against blacks. To commemorate earlier marches and to highlight continued injustice, the NAACP organized a 1,000-mile march this summer from Selma to D.C. This time, there was support from all kinds of groups. In the mix was a Torah, the Holy Book of the Jews, which was carried by the which carried the whole march by rabbis, Jews, and non-Jews alike. Who are Reformed Jews? Why did they bring the Torah? And what spurs their passion? Hear an interview with Rabbi Seth Limmer, who sparked Reformed rabbis to march, and who originated the idea of carrying the Torah. Who is he? What else are Reformed Jews doing and why? Also watch Blacks, Jews, and Justice, our video about Seth and Interrevolution on Interrevolutionary TV, voiceamerica.tv. And now... Beth has more to share. Well, I just want to tell you it was a fantastic interview. How do I know? Because we pre-recorded it. So I got all mixed up. But because we pre-recorded it, we didn't know who our guest was going to be on um, October 8th. So, Christine, so what's going to happen is next week you're going to hear our uh, interview of Seth. But you're not going to know who our guest is going to be for October 8th. But you're going to hear about it now because... In 30 seconds, Christine is going to tell us all about it. I am, because we just booked him this morning. I'm so excited about our guest for October 8th. His name is Steve Almond, and he's recently written a book that's been published called Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. And this is a man who is an NFL fan uh, for 40 years, a Raiders fan who's now, for some reason, living in New England and not a Patriots fan. But anyways... Um, you know, he grew up and he first started watching football because he wanted to spend time with his dad, but over time things began to bother him. And I know a lot of people have seen, um, you know, research out there on the concussions, the NFL, you know, players who follow the lawsuit, the NFL players who are leaving the NFL because they don't want to die with degenerative brain disease, et cetera. Um, but he, he's looked into that, but not just that, the drugs, the physical damage, the culture of violence, how it's glorified. Um, he asks, does it engender racism, homophobia, you know, misogyny? What's the impact on women? So as you can imagine, he's a very unpopular among some people. Um, but, um, you know, even coming from that stance of being a fan and loving the sport for so long, he thought it was time to take a look at these questions. He so sure we're did. having him on our show on October 8th, and it's... It's going to be an incredible conversation. What we're calling that show is Tackling the NLF. NFL. NFL, I knew I was going to do that wrong. See, I slowed (laughs) it. The NLF is the... um, I am just like, my briefing for you is going to be very I know. It's like, the NLF is, when I was a kid, it was the North Vietnamese. Okay, it's the (laughs) NFL. We're tackling the NFL, and we're going to start a campaign If you agree, listen to this show, and if you feel in your heart that this this pro-football mania uh, culture of violence is damaging our children, and I don't know how you're going to be able to think anything different, we're just saying, turn it off. 
we can pull it down by turning it off. So yes. thank you so much, Christine. Thank, thank you so you. much, James. Blessings to all. Can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.